2: Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am your Headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280 The Patriot. And, of course, I'm joined in studio once again by our producer and my co-host, Mark Durkin.
0: Nice to see you, Rebecca. How are you?
2: I am very good. We are quickly approaching Christmas here.
0: Only another, what, 10 days? I know. It's really close by. Yes, it is.
2: Very exciting. Well, we are going to continue a conversation that we started last week, and we're looking forward to that. And it ties in to uh, our nation's um, emphasis now on... kind of picking winners and losers and rewriting history. Absolutely. Yes. So for much of our nation's existence, public schools incorporated a key goal of the First Amendment to create an informed citizenry capable of self-government and political debate. And according to a 1967 Supreme Court case, Chiesin versus the Board of Education, the classroom is peculiarly... Peculiarly, sorry about that, the marketplace of ideas. The nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to that robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues rather than through any kind of authoritative selection.
0: Authoritative selection being the key phrase there. In fact, today, one doesn't have to look far to see that there is a violent attack against the free exchange of ideas. From the college campus, where conservative speakers we see all the time are being kicked off campus before they can even enter it, all the way into the public square, where across the country, commemorative statues and symbols of American historical events and figures are being torn to the ground. Of course, what comes to mind is Charlottesville, Virginia, just a couple of years ago. There was a big controversy surrounding that. Mm -hmm. So what gives? Well, 2019 Mm -hmm. marks the 70th anniversary of George Orwell's novel 1984, in which the main character, works for the Ministry of Truth in a, quote unquote, (laughs) in a one-party socialist state. Now, the Ministry of Truth does not promote truth, but instead it rewrites history to conform to party doctrine. Orwell, he prophetically understood how elites can manipulate history for propaganda purposes, Mm -hmm. of course, observing what was going on in Nazi Germany and in communist Soviet Union as well. Well, unfortunately, Minnesota is not immune to having the names of popular landmarks changed or the history surrounding these landmarks rewritten. In fact, our guest tonight tells us that there is an aggressive push to replace our traditional self-understanding as the land of freedom and opportunity with a vision of America as an illegitimate nation that advanced by trampling on victims'
2: groups. That's right. And joining us in studio to shed light on this is Catherine Kirsten. Catherine is a writer and an attorney. She is a senior policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. She was a founding director of the Center and served as its chair from 1996 to 98. And Catherine has written on cultural and policy issues for a variety of publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Weekly Standard, Christianity Today, Policy Review, First Things, and The Star Tribune. For two years, she served as a regular commentator for National Public Radio's All Things Considered. She earned a B.A. from Notre Dame, a master's from Yale, and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Minnesota Law School. Catherine has been a regular guest on Education Nation, and we are so honored to welcome her back on again tonight. Catherine, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, last week, we discussed the name changes that have taken place at Lake Calhoun, and several surrounding streets, and we even kind of learned about the problems that that's causing, yes. um, even things as practical as getting your groceries delivered. Exactly. Um, but tonight, let's turn our focus to Minnesota's most valuable historical asset, which is Fort Snelling. When it was built, and what were the, what were the intended missions that were carried out there from this location?
1: Well, it was built initially uh, after the War of 1812, to uh, keep the British, who were still uh, menacing American frontiers from Canada, uh, out of our new lands, the new lands of the Louisiana Purchase. And there was a particular focus on regulating the fur trade trade, and uh, attempting to keep peace uh, between the, the Indian tribes that often fought together.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. And that, obviously, was an important mission. Yes. <laughs> and 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 was very um, genuine and important, and um, and now we are not really going to be hearing about that important mission that it actually served, are we?
0: No, we're not. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we had spoken about this a little bit last week, Catherine, but, you know, just for our listeners that uh, may not have heard last week, you had written that after its creation, Fort Snelling had Indian agents at the fort that regularly supplied the Dakota Indians. Describe the type of relationship that Mm -hmm. the Indian agents had with the Indian tribe, the Dakotas, and how the U S government served as a peacemaker for the feuding Dakota tribe. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, the, um, the, the first Indian agent was particularly good. Lawrence Talia who, uh, was close to the Dakota, uh, I believe had a Dakota wife and, uh, supplied them with many of the things that they needed uh, to enhance survival like like uh, metal optics. Of course, the Dakota Indians did not have the uh, ability to work with metal. And so uh, he supplied them with guns and knives and other hunting uh, hunting implements, traps and axes and that kind of thing. And, and also uh, often gave them food and tobacco. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the peace councils, uh, there were uh, more than 200 U.S.-sponsored peace councils between 1820 and 31, uh between the uh, Dakota and Ojibwe tribes mm-hmm. who were long time enemies. That's
2: Which
0: a g- lot of peace councils is. in 11 years.
2: Yes, it really is. And, and again, pointing back to the good that was happening right. uh, that's now being glossed over. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward to 1862, and Minnesota experiences what you've described as a tragic episode in the state's history. You wrote that the historical events pertaining to the Dakota War and its aftermath have been rewritten, reaching egregious proportions. Before we discuss the blatant misrepresentations, what emergencies were the Dakota Indians facing in the summer of 1862, and how did they respond to those emergencies?
1: Well, the Indians, of course, always had a, a difficult time surviving on the prairies in our climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1862, uh, they were running short of food as, their, uh, as the animals they hunted uh, decreased in population. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the land payments from the federal government were late, and there were uh, tensions between the Dakota and the Trader's. And the uh, Indian agent at that time, his name was uh, Thomas Galbraith. Hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, going going back then and, and just kind of talking about the blatant represent, misrepresentation, maybe we can jump ahead to that then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, um, the response of the Dakota um, to the pressures that were starting to build left Minnesotans outraged by the cruel and the barbaric actions that left many people slain. Mm -hmm. Um, There were cries for revenge. So maybe if we could talk a little bit about uh, some of the actions that came that left Minnesotans outraged, and how did the U.S. government then respond after capturing some of the Dakota perpetrators?
1: Right. So there was uh, was a group of Dakota warriors who decided to wage war against the white settlers and uh, what resulted was a massacre. In fact, it was the the largest death toll in a in a white Indian uh, conflict in the history of the United States. There were mm-hmm. yep. uh, more than 600 Southwest Minnesota settlers, uh, many of them around New Ulm, who were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, the toll reached 650 uh, mm-hmm. for those who died after. Most of them were were women and children who had no way. To defend themselves. And if you look at the number of whites who were killed at that time, right. and you, if, if it occurred today and the same proportion of Minnesota's population was killed, uh, it would be 15,000 dead. Wow. And that is five times the death toll of 9 11. It's a huge, huge death toll for the time. And it's particularly uh, tragic that almost 100 of these victims were children aged 10 or under, and 40 of these were babies of 2 or under. And there were 20,000, I mean, think of it, there were 20,000 refugees in that small population who had to leave their homes, and hundreds of of children were orphaned.
2: Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, how the U.S. uh, government and the state... uh, armed forces um, responded. Uh, well, well, I guess first I, I want to get all these questions answered. You yeah. talked about the brutal the brutal way that many of these uh, people were were killed, right. and I this was important about 140 miles. This is the kind of thing that is just simply not talked about, but is well documented. Yep. Um, it, in some cases, babies were nailed to trees by the Dakota oh. warriors and left to die there. There, there are actually. Um, uh, graphic uh, oh. pictures of this. I mean, there are there are you know drawings of this. Mm-hmm. There are children uh, whose whose limbs were were chopped off with tomahawks at, right in front of their parents, and oh. some of the victims had all their internal organs ripped out and scattered across the ground. And, oh my!
0: Gosh.
1: And one one um, eyewitness said bodies were. Mangled quote to such a degree as to be almost deprived of human form, and mm. that included a woman whose head was left on a table with a knife and a fork mm. stuck in it, so you can imagine um, there there were just desperate cries for revenge from the yes. from uh, the survivors of these murdered victims and the u s government uh, went after the perpetrators, uh, but then they moved to protect the Dakota women and children who who were you know, just uh, as the as the winter came on, or the, the weather got colder, they were defenseless, and so the army built a camp over by Fort Snelling to house during the winter uh, more than 1,600 uh, Dakota, largely Dakota dependents, and they, their intention was to shield these Indian uh, yes. dependents. Hmm. From, from furious, revenge-minded whites who, mm-hmm. who wanted to kill all of them, and mm-hmm. secondly, to, to feed these Indians so that they would survive. Wow. The winter.
2: Talk about the complete opposite of the narrative yes. that's really being presented. Yeah, um,
1: the, the narrative being presented is that this is a con- was a concentration camp and that the U.S. government had... Uh, Genocidal policies uh, across the nation toward Indigenous people, and this uh, we're told is is such a genocidal policy.
2: Mm. And once again, when we aren't teaching history um, using primary documents, you know, you you know the truth because you're going back and you're looking yeah. at primary documents, and and yet how many schools are doing that? How many oh, journalists none. are doing that? You know, right. very few. None. Yeah, and so then you can see how. How the narrative and and history gets completely rewritten. Yeah. Well, in your article, Catherine, you point to the Minnesota Historical Society as the culprit in the rewriting of this Mm -hmm. particular historical narrative, anyway, as it pertains to the Dakota War of 1862. How did the Minnesota Historical Society website portray the U.S. government housing and treatment of Dakota women and children after the war? Yes, and I alluded
1: to that um, to the fact that this um, holding camp, where uh, the Indians who who lived there were uh, free to come and go, they were mm-hmm. given uh, generally the same rations as the fort soldiers, and and it's a good bet that many would have starved without this. They were mm-hmm. given medical care. Nevertheless, the uh, the Minnesota Historical Society website. Portrays this army camp for uh, for women and children as a concentration camp, mm-hmm. uh, which, as we well know, pulls up images of Auschwitz yes. and uh, similar Nazi camps, mm-hmm. and they put it in the category, this larger category of genocidal policies, mm-hmm. and the you know that the, the fact that um, the Indian women and children uh, moved to the camp, they call that a forced march, which is. Not accurate. Most of them went willingly
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: because they wanted they, they wanted to survive uh, yeah. the winter. But mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of um, a- a- attempting to uh, make the, the the white people involved here um, villains and yeah. the Indians portrayed as victims. That is very simplistic and not accurate.
2: Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine um, feeling comfortable re- re- rewriting that kind of history. Uh, we know when you think of the evil that was perpetrated against these settlers and that the that the Native Americans were actually protected from retribution by yes. the whites, and then that gets portrayed as evil. Um, yes,
1: and it's important to say that um, many of the Dakota people were not in favor of of going to... War, and they were caught up in this uh, mm-hmm. to, the, to their detriment, but I think that the feeling was that these two these two peoples cannot um, peacefully um, coexist uh, on the same in, in near proximity to each other after such a horrific yeah. experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you were listening to Education Nation here on a m twelve eighty the Patriot. We are continuing our discussion. For the second week in a row with Katherine Kirsten discussing her latest article from Think Minnesota, Change the Name, Rewrite History, Redefine Politics, as it pertains to several of the major landmarks here in the state of Minnesota. We are talking about Fort Snelling. And getting back to our discussion about Fort Snelling, we just talked about some of the history account of what took place in the Dakota War of 1862, how some of that was rewritten. Well, in 2017, Steve Elliott, who was then the Historical Society's executive director, ordered for signs changing the name from Historic Fort Snelling to Historic Fort Snelling at Epidote, so by law, Bidoti. 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 okay, yeah. yes. And by law, only the Minnesota legislature can change the fort's name. So how did the Minnesota State Senate respond to this? What was their charge against the Historical Society? And how did the Historical Society respond?
1: Well, uh, they were uh, concerned about what they called revisionist history for the reasons that we discussed, and they threatened to withhold $4 million uh, from the Historical Society's funding. Uh, and, well, I, I should say, first of all, that these the signs did go up. They changed uh, the, the name, uh, as you said, uh, to Historic Fort Snelling at the Doty. Doty. And so the Senate uh, wanted the, uh, the signs to, be, to come down. And it's my understanding that there was an agreement on the part of the Historical Society to, to do that uh, they did not do it at that time. Uh, they claimed uh, at some points the signs were temporary or that they just weren't really renaming. They just added historical context, et cetera. But eventually they did acknowledge that they couldn't do this. And those signs are now covered, to my knowledge. And it, you, know, you can't see them the way you could see them before. And they have actually launched a, a public input process uh, to, to change the name by hmm. going to the legislature. I mean, to, to, to supposedly see if the public wants to do this, right. or at least they'll take their own account as they make their decision on what to recommend.
2: Right. Now, interesting. Think, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just, just <laughs> going to say,
0: the name change aspect, though, wasn't that, in a sense, being put forth as to be included, like in some sort of larger revitalization project? Like that yeah, was just one of the yes, components.
2: Yes. Oh, so it was even kind of yes. being snuck in there. Yes. Okay, yes. interesting. What yeah, I'm yeah, There's... A, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say what I, one of the things I find interesting is that just a little bit of pushback um, is causing causing them to ta- to rethink this. Whereas I look at the Lake Calhoun situation, and that was done in a different manner, and there was no pushback at all, and that all just happened with no discussion and and no second guessing. Right. So it yeah, it yeah it does show yeah. that if you do get involved i mean the you know I, I i we we want people on our show to um listen and learn and get involved mm-hmm. in the political process and what's happening in their uh, neighborhoods and in our states and in our nation, and uh, it just shows you that maybe even contacting the legislature about things like this. Um, oh, there's
1: no question of that. You, know, you are absolutely, absolutely yeah. right on that. People, if this actually comes to fruition, that they do go to the legislature asking for uh, an official name change, that would be very important mm-hmm. for people to make their, make their opinions known. Yep,
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm just saying, even the fact that they pushed back, the legislature pushed back, yeah. or the Senate pushed back beforehand, you know, they, Correct. It, it slowed it down is what I'm saying. And it's putting it into yeah. more of a public process, which is where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. Well, I'm we're going to, yeah, we're going to turn our attention <laughs> here
0: for the last eight minutes on the last landmark. Yeah. And this includes the University of Minnesota. And in 2017, faculty at the University of Minnesota had staged an exhibit which alleged that four campus administrators from the 1930s and 40s had engaged in anti Semitism, enforced racial segregation in dormitories, or had taken other, quote unquote, problematic positions. So take our okay. listeners, if you would, through this case. And did the university end up removing the names of the administrators from prominent campus buildings?
1: No, which is uh, kind of Rebecca's point. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's good one. Yes, um, yes.
1: No, no. Uh, it was a 2017 exhibit called The Campus Divided at the U of M that was put together by some faculty members and made charges against four uh, former administrators, like Lotus Kaufman, of course, Kaufman Union yeah. named after him. People, as you say, Mark, of, of real distinction, uh, have buildings named yeah. after them at the U of M. And um, there was a 125 uh, page report. That a faculty group did after Eric Kaler, who was then the, the U.S. president, appointed a, a faculty task force to recommend whether the names of those buildings uh, should, in fact, be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a, a fairly lengthy process, uh, a kind of uh, hearing, let's say, at a at a regents meeting. Uh, described by the Daily, and this so Daily as a raucous affair. Hmm. And you can just imagine yes. what well, that was <laughs> like with students and some mm-hmm. activist faculty. Um, but but the fact the uh, the regents pushed back, and they actually <laughs> did something that's rarely done. Mm-hmm. They they voted before voting ten to one against this. They actually started to look at the documents that the task force had claimed supported these charges of anti-Semitism and racism. And uh, Professor uh, Ian Maitland at the Carlson School uh, did some of this work, and he actually concluded that uh, that, that the documents that, that the, the faculty report was pointing to, in many cases, uh, really uh, tended toward the opposite
2: oh, conclusion. My. Wow. And
1: uh, when the when the regents looked at this. Uh, one of them said, quote, the, the faculty t- uh, in, in preparing their task force, quote, we're not doing this as an exercise in looking for the truth. They presumed these people were guilty. Mm-hmm. So the regents did not vote to rename the buildings. And uh, now uh, there, this process has been renewed, but there is an attempt to create a process for looking at buildings' names, uh, which didn't really exist at the U of M before this. And I think some of the regents are advocating a pretty simple approach here. Uh, So there's a new president, Joan Gable, Mm -hmm. and uh, whatever will happen under her watch, uh, we'll have to will have to look at closely
2: right right that's 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 very good well how do the name changers these people who generally portray you know uh, are the the people who are promoting changing the names of some of these um, important places and sculptures Mm -hmm. and what have you how do they portray america's founding principles
1: well you know as we as we know say changing the name of Lake Calhoun mm-hmm. uh, is is not going to help the uh, the Dakota people or uh, Native Americans today. Uh, it is it is the, the process generally, in my view, is really about the name changers themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are stages for drama, right? These yeah. campaigns and they, yeah. they provide chances for for these self righteous, often in my view, yeah. uh, self dramatizing elite. To to pose to preen really as the vanguard of progress and social mm-hmm. justice, so mm-hmm. much more caring, so much more knowledgeable than all the rest of us.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so well put. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, as the left's campaign to rewrite history expands, what will the contemporary version of Orwell's Newspeak look like, and what will the end game look like? Do you feel? Well,
1: I, I think this is. Just incredibly important, Mark. Uh, the the left's campaign to rewrite history really threatens to create an intellectual vacuum, and what they're trying to do, I think, is to create shame and guilt. On the part of Americans, and in particular white Americans, you know, people who who are just afraid to, to to weigh in or to ask to be taken seriously because of the you know profound guilt they're supposed to bear because of what people did you know 150 years ago. So I think the, the aim is to fill this this vacuum. With, as you say, a a new version of Orwell's Newspeak. And Orwell invented this term of Newspeak, and it's a language designed not to allow us to articulate the truth uh, in an actual, you know, accurate way, but to make it more difficult to think independently at all. And so the new speak of today uh, is words like diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, the, these words do not mean when they're used by the left. They do not mean what common sense suggests. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mean conformity and inequity and persecution of those who disagree. Uh, and it, but but the, the left include a lot of what Thomas Sowell has called verbal virtuosos, people who are very, very skilled at manipulating language and framing the debate by doing that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the end game, uh, Orwell talked about that, and he said it was the erasing of truth, and as I said, prevention of independent thought. And uh, his, his very pithy quote, about um, the importance of preserving history so that records aren't destroyed and falsified books aren't rewritten, which is what basically happens in 1984, is he said, who controls the past, who controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past. Mm -hmm. So if we give our uh, left-wing elites the power to start by chipping away at factual history and imposing, do speak in the name of fairness, we are courting uh, a very dangerous endgame, anti-democratic results. Mm
0: -hmm. I think Abraham Lincoln, uh, our former president, uh, had a good understanding of this as well, too, uh, during his presidency, when he said that the philosophy of the school classroom in one generation will be the philosophy oh. of the government in the next.
2: Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yes. Absolutely correct. So important. And we can't be so busy with our lives that we don't pay attention to these What's things. going on, exactly. and I think it almost just becomes a din. When you turn on the nightly news and, and true, these, these true. things are happening all over the nation and, right. and even all over the world to a degree. I mean, how, and,
0: how powerful are words, though? I mean, when you think about words and what they have traditionally met and then when the definition and meaning of those words has changed, you're really yeah. on a slippery slope. Right,
2: right. So we need people yes, exactly. waking up and paying attention. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for enlightening us these last two weeks. We are so happy to have you on the show. And Mark, thank you again. Always a pleasure. And if you'd like to listen to this podcast or any other podcast please go to ednationmn.org, ednationmn.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Education Nation Radio. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.